bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and we have a special bonus pod for you. That's right. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that's been humming in the background of the news for the last, I would say, year and a half, almost two years. But of course, we've been distracted by COVID and the craziness in the States. So, I personally got tired of hearing about COVID every single bloody day, and therefore I wanted to do something different. And the states will be crazy again soon, I'm sure. All right, a little housekeeping first. Um, Thank you, thank you. Big shout out to all you listeners who honestly, it's like, we never left. You guys downloaded the Bad and Bitchy podcast and Misogynist of the Week in, at similar rates to when we came off the air. So I'm glad to have all you old listeners and hopefully some new listeners back in the fold. Thank you for being patient with me and thank you for just listening. Second of all, um, A couple of you have reached out to me asking me if we still have Patreon. We do still have Patreon, patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. And a couple of you reached out to me to ask about where they can send donations straight to me that you can send it through email, erica at notinmycolor.com. That's E-R-I-C-A and color with a U. Also, some of you also reached out. You guys have been talking to me this week. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, you, a couple of you, a few of you reached out and asked about the Not In My Color Masterclass. It starts mid-February. We are taking applications, enroll at notinmycolor.com slash masterclass if you want to know about anti-racism and how to deconstruct white supremacy and how to really build inclusive organizations and roll and roll and roll and roll okay when we come back we will have our guest and our topic Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. 
So on today's podcast, we have with us Sherry Wong, former Green Party candidate for Ottawa Centre and executive director for Alliance Canada Hong Kong, a collective to mobilize and empower the Canada Hong Kong community groups to take political action. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start by going through a little bit of Hong Kong history um, from uh, from the Qin Dynasty, the last dynasty really in China. And um, you are going to take up from 2014 and tell us what's going on. Okay. So um, Hong Kong first came under Chinese rule during the Qin dynasty in the third century BC, and it remained a part of the Chinese empire for about 2000 years. But between 1842 and 1898, the British empire gradually seized control of the three main regions that now make up modern day Hong Kong, Hong Kong Island, the Kowloon Peninsula, and the New Territories. From the British economic standpoint, Chinese tea was a crucial item since it provided massive wealth for British businessmen in China, and the duty on tea accounted for 10% of the British government's income. Uh, Some of the earliest items sold to China in exchange for tea were British clocks, British uh, watches, and musical boxes known as sing-songs. Yet these were not enough to compensate for the trade imbalance and the insistence by the Chinese that they be paid for in silver. So what happened was the British uh, opium exports from India after 1830 provided the silver needed to balance the trade. A special Chinese commissioner appointed by the Qing emperor wrote a letter to Queen Victoria in 1839, taking a stance against the acceptance of the of opium in trade. He confiscated more than 20,000 chests of opium already in Hong Kong, which had already been used years earlier as a transshipment point and supervise their destruction. London saw the destruction of British products as an insult and sent the first expeditionary force to the region and thus began the first opium war from 1839 to 1842. After a series of Chinese defeats, Hong Kong Island was occupied by the British on the 20th of January, 1841. It was the second major um, war in the Opium Wars fought over issues related to the exportation of opium to China and resulted in a second defeat for the Qin Dynasty. In 1842, the Treaty of Nanjing, the first of what the Chinese later called the Unequal Treaties, granted an indemnity and extraterritoriality to Britain 
the opening of five treaty ports and secession of Hong Kong Island. The failure of this treaty to satisfy British goals of improved trade and diplomatic relations led to the Second Opium War from 1856 to 1860. Um, I just want to break and just say that the British basically forced opium exportation down China's throat. Just want to say that. Um, and fought a it war. Was, yeah. It was very damaging for the communities uh, back then. Like drugs became a huge issue and it, it devastated many areas of China. So it is oh. often a point that China reminds us about. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Britain, again. Um, later in 1898, the Qing government reluctantly agreed to the convention between Great Britain and China respecting an expansion of Hong Kong territory, also known as the Second Convention of Peking, that compelled China to cede a further area north of Boundary Street to the Sham Chung River, along with more than 200 nearby islands. Seen by the British government as vital to safeguard the defense capabilities of Hong Kong, these areas became collectively known as the New Territories. The 99-year lease would expire at midnight on June 30th, 1997. So in all this, you had the Boxer Rebellion, which was an anti-imperialist, anti-foreign, and anti-Christian uprising in China between 1899 and 1901 towards the end of the Qing dynasty. The immediate background of the uprising included severe drought and disruption by the growth of foreign spheres of influence after the Sino-Japanese War of 1895. After several months of growing violence and murder in the Shandong province and the North China Plain against foreign and Christian presence in 1900, boxer fighters convinced they were invulnerable to foreign weapons converged on Beijing with the slogan, support the Qing government and exterminate the foreigners. A major cause of the discontent in North China was missionary activity. The Treaty of Tianjin and the Convention of Peking signed in 1860 after the Second Opium War had granted foreign missionaries the freedom to preach anywhere in China and to buy land on which to build churches. Ain't that some shit right there? Mm. Anyway, An international force of some 19,000 troops was assembled, most of the soldiers coming from Japan and Russia, but many also coming from Britain, the United States, France, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. On August 14, 1900, that force finally captured Beijing, relieving the foreigners and Christians besieged there since June 20th. After extensive discussions, a protocol was finally signed in September 1901, ending the hostilities and providing for reparations to be made to the foreign powers. Perhaps a total of up to 100,000 or more people died in the conflict, although estimates on casualties have varied widely, thus permanently putting down the Boxer Rebellion or the Boxer Uprising in China. So 
Um, that is a little bit of Hong Kong history and Chinese history. Um, I'm surprised that the Boxer Rebellion isn't talked about more in news, but, you know, that isn't surprising at all. So I want you, Sherry, to take us from 2014 about, so um, the Umbrella Uprising Revolution to today. Yeah, um, a little bit of context here. Hong Kong, general Hong Kongers have a lot of respect for police. And I think this is why 2014's Umbrella Revolution came as a shock to many Hong Kongers. I think it is one of the first times since Hong Kong has been returned to China where um, there were uh, widespread police brutality. And what led to this brutality is uh, Hong Kong students and youths and pro-democracy activists organized an occupation um, in the central government and financial district of Hong Kong. They paralyzed the streets and areas around this district um, as a way to peacefully protest for the decisions that was made by the central Chinese government. Um, as promised in the basic law of Hong Kong, uh, we would be striving towards some form of universal suffrage. Uh, the deadline was pushed um, back again and again over the time. So 2014, when the central government decided to uh, vet basically uh, the candidates of chief executives, um, that was a moment where a lot of Hong Kongers decided that's enough. Um, so 2014 was the era of peaceful resistance in Hong Kong. Um, but unfortunately, after 79 days of occupying the district, uh, police came in with tear gas, with pepper spray, and violently suppressed the protesters. And the scenes of the suppression and this crackdown uh, was recorded not only by activists, but by mainstream media who has been camping there with the students for 79 days. Uh, it was captured by citizens. So it kind of shattered the image that Hong Kongers have and the trust that we used to have in our police. I know, trusting in the police seems like a very novel idea, but in Hong Kong, it was, um, it, there were or one of the highest approval ratings forces out there in East Asia. And then if we kind of just fast forward from there, two years after that, there is another um, kind of a, I won't say, I won't say a movement, but a, violent protests between Hong Kongers and the police. And once again, uh, Hong Kongers witnessed the police brutality. Um, and that again, kind of further enrode that trust that Hong Kongers had for the police, um, which leads us into 2019 with the uh, anti-extradition or as I would, I would like to refer it to a uh, democratic movement of Hong Kong around March of 2019, the government has decided to propose an anti uh, an extradition bill, excuse me, an extradition bill that would allow uh, extradition outside of the legislative review. So there is an existing legis um, legislative review for any extradition cases, but this new law will remove that uh, oversight by legislation. So uh, by legislators. So Hong Kongers and um, the legal professionals and basically 
the pro-democracy activists were very worried that um, such a law could um, erode the legal system and the judicial system in Hong Kong, where extradition could be used as a tool to uh, imprison and incarcerate pro-democracy activists that the central government does not like. Um, very quickly from this kind of a, um, like an, a mentality, oh, it's just another government bill, very quickly Hong Kongers mobilized and realized that we have to take it to the streets to protest. Um, so uh, June of 2019, we saw a million people marching on the streets of Hong Kong demanding the government withdraw this legislation. Um, and we took to a general strike. We once again occupied the space that uh, the Umbrella Revolution protesters occupied. And, and again, we were violently cracked down. Tear gas was shot, there was uh, water cannons. Um, so peaceful protesters uh, were violently beaten down. We saw a lot of footage of protesters being beaten on the streets. Uh, simply for wearing the color what the protesters were wearing. So very quickly uh, that evolved into not only a protest movement, but also um, incorporating both ideologies from this nonviolent sense of um, protesting and as well as this uh, more militant side of the movement. So the peaceful folks would be putting up art, um, doing these um, marches, occupation of aces, while the more militant protesters were the ones who were, you know, beating back the tear gas, um, uh, delaying, delaying the police's advances so that the peaceful protesters can leave. And that's when we saw a lot of these beautiful footages coming out of Hong Kong of uh, the protest movement. Uh, but unfortunately, good things don't last very long. Uh, the protest movement was growing very quickly. And in response, the Chinese government introduced what we now call as the NSL, the National Security Legislation or National Security Law. It basically criminalizes any form of behavior that could be seen as a challenge to uh, the central government's authority. So with the passage of the National Security Law, with unfortunately COVID, uh, the democratic movement came to a halt. Um, and today there is rarely any protest happening on the streets of Hong Kong. Any type of organizing has either been moved underground or the lead organizers have been arrested, charged, um, detained, or uh, in currently jail. And that brings us to today where, um, most Westerners understand as the movement is dead, while Hong Kongers like me are still trying to think of ways where we can evolve this liberation movement, this um, willingness to keep our people and to keep um, to keep advocating for the city that we love and grow up in. So um, just want to make a point that in 2018, a 19-year-old Hong Kong man named Chan Tong Kai allegedly killed his pregnant girlfriend in Taiwan after an argument, and he managed to return to Hong Kong before Taiwanese law enforcement officials could arrest him. So ordinarily, Hong Kong law would allow the government to return a fugitive like Chan to the country seeking to prosecute him. However, Hong Kong is organized as a special administrative region of China with a quasi-democratic government that operates separately from the mainland communist one. 
This is where it gets messy. And that's where it gets messy. Okay. So there's no, nobody, China doesn't recognize Taiwanese sovereignty and therefore it doesn't have an extradition treaty. And Hong Kong doesn't have an extradition treaty either. So it's kind of like this weird, complex web of weirdness. Geopolitics. Geopolitics. <laughs> yeah. Because of, you know, Taiwanese and Chinese and the U.S. recognition of Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. So we're not going to get into that. However, it seems like this sort of China flexing its... Um, its geopolitical muscles was like, well, <laughs> screw that. We're going to take over. Um, and therefore Hong Kong sort of had fewer rights is what I understand in that bill that they yes. proposed to do so. And I think it's important for our Western audiences to understand the, the government who drafted this bill. So the Canadian equivalent of the cabinet is completely appointed by the chief executive who is not democratically elected. Of Hong elected. Kong from who reports to China. Yes. Okay. So gotcha. not only does she report to China, she's also elected by uh, like thousand something, uh, a thousand something people who are also appointed by China effectively. Okay. So, so she's mm-hmm. not really elected, only elected in name only, basically. Mm-hmm. I there it serves multiple purposes. So obviously they're using this uh, femicide as a case to be like, oh, we need extradition treaties. But really, what we saw um, before the 2019 protests is, um, you know, pro democracy figures, including bookstore owners, were kidnapped to China. Mm-hmm. So we uh, in the democratic circles believe that this extradition bill would serve as a stepping stone for China to effectively extradite and criminalize any individuals and have them face so-called justice in China. So how does the Canadian government choose to view this? How do they respond? I think they understand the growing problem that it is. Um, You know, there are 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong that the, the Canadian government never fails to mention. Um, so obviously they are concerned about the Canadians who are in Hong Kong and their safety, whether it was facing a you know, peaceful occupation of students or um, militant protests on the streets of Hong Kong. But uh, what, what we have seen from the government aside from worrying about the 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong is that they are very concerned about the autonomy of Hong Kong. Uh, they are worried that uh, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, the agreement between the UK and Chinese government uh, in, that was uh, you know, ratified at the UN is being violated. And it is very much, they are going with this line of, it is an international agreement that is uh, being challenged by China and we have to keep an eye on it. But there hasn't really been anything to hold Chinese, uh, the Chinese government accountable for violating this international law that Canada is a signatory to. Okay. And how does that play into Canadian politics here at this point in time? Um, I think going back to even 2014, we saw the Conservatives 
very immediately taking a very anti-China um, stance, saying we support with we support the quote unquote freedom fighters of Hong Kong. Uh, we support human rights and democracy and these fundamental values. Yeah, I I, I have thoughts. We can get to that. Um, yeah. And obviously the Greens and the NDP is like, we support democracy. We support human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Liberals, the same thing. We support human rights. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes an issue is more than human rights. Like we have kind of already hinted at it that this extradition treaty, this move to try and um, assert control over Taiwan by claiming Taiwan is a part of China, Taiwan is an independent country, FYI. Um, it, it's there. Canada is missing the entire geopolitical piece when we're talking about Hong Kong. And that is the same kind of behavior I see being exercised by all the political parties in Canada What's the piece? as well. What's the piece? They don't understand that this imperialist expansion onto Hong Kong is currently at their doorstep. Um, At the doorstep of Canada you're talking about? At the doorstep of Canada. Okay. Um, This kind of connects to, you know, the activists in Canada who are being harassed for being a Hong Konger. Uh, We saw other types of uh, harassment against other Chinese dissidents as well, but... um, so tell us what's happening with uh, the leaders of these protests. We've seen uh, bits of news just telling us that they've been jailed by the Chinese for um, really what it seems like questionable charges, to be honest. And so tell us a little bit about that. And yeah, when I mean- the movement sort of goes from here in Hong Kong? Um, So the Hong Kong and Chinese government is now relying on the newly, well, I guess that's not that new anymore, but the the national security law that was passed last summer to basically arrest and charge or basically arrest and detain pro-democracy activists um, who are seen as figureheads. But um, it's very important to make that distinction that they are arrested under the national security law because that law would allow for these activists to be extradited to China and face the judicial system in China. Exactly what we were trying to avoid in 2019. Uh, But these arrests serve as an intimidation tactic and a suppression, not only on the leader figures themselves, but actually towards the general public of Hong Kong. It kind of serves as a very strong message to us to know that if um, I am ever found out to be an activist, uh, I will be arrested and I will be charged. Um, So this is a form of what um, often in East Asia we refer to as white terror. So the fear that brews from political persecution, uh, not only by legal charges, but also socio-economical um, perse- uh, persecution. So, you know, we saw activists having their bank accounts deactivated, um, funds frozen, passports taken away, uh, their phones and computers confiscated, which means the people that they are also in contact with are in danger because you can very much just 
uh, find out who you've been in touch with by uh, obtaining someone's phone or computer. So we are seeing this kind of a kind of a cleanup operation in the China's uh, Chinese government's mind, which is basically arrest everyone they can get their hands on. And if these people who were arrested do not behave in, um, do not conform to the rule of rules that um, the CCP is putting forward, then they will be arrested again, that they will be charged and worse, extradited to China. What would you like to see from the Canadian government, uh, the liberal government, in terms of um, a either addressing these issues or really holding China to account, as you were saying before? I think um, sanctioning the officials responsible for the erosion of human rights in Hong Kong and in China is a very important step that the Liberal government is able to uh, do. We have the legislation for it, but also uh, open up an asylum pathways for Hong Kongers. Um, we have been telling them since last June that uh, freedom of movement is being restricted through formal and informal channels. And there's a closing window to be able to get political activists out of Hong Kong. And yet we have seen no action um, and no policy changes to enable refugees to be able to leave Hong Kong or come to Canada, especially because um, it's made extra difficult with the COVID restrictions. But, you know, asylum policies are, um, asylum policies should not be dependent on whether or not uh, there is a global pandemic. People still need safety. People still need a place to go. I'm frustrated over just um, how the liberal government has handled this crisis, not only for Hong Kong refugee seekers, but for refugee seekers on a larger scale. On a larger scale because of COVID. Now, the liberals passed an immigration um, measure uh, related to Hong Kong and related to um, uh, those in peril, I suppose. Let's talk facts. <laughs> Let's do it. Why don't Let's you why did you lead that discussion? I have thoughts. Yeah. Um, don't we all? So, That's why you're here, honey. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tell me you your know, thoughts. Uh, so I have too many. Oh, but for this immigration measure, let's call it what it is. It is an attempt to capture elites from Hong Kong for Canada's economic benefit. It is not for Hong Kongers. And facts, here's why. First thing, you have to have graduated from a post-secondary education. That's not accessible. And then uh, when you go deeper into this policy and try and understand the situation Hong Kong is in, these Hong Kong protesters range from anywhere from 12 years old to being 60s and 80s. Basically anyone who is outside of this 20s just graduated university would be included in this immigration measure. Meaning it does not help majority of Hong Kongers. Okay, fine. You're a university graduate. You have graduated in the last five years. You want to apply for this immigration measure you are going to have to invest so much money and effort into navigating 
Canada's immigration system to be able to get here. In the end, this immigration measure does nothing for those who are in the most danger, who are most at risk, but serves as a self-interest for Canada to bring in economic migrants. That's all. That's it. Well, when I saw this measure, I thought I, I was like, this is, I know they're trying to frame it as though it's some um, pathway for people who are refugees from Hong Kong while um, honestly putting the same restrictions they've always had. If you remember in uh, like, I remember in 1997, 96, 97, the Chrétien government was um, accepting um, immigrants from Hong Kong who had at least 300,000 in the bank account. It seems to me that the Canadian government, especially the liberal government, has always been about let's get the moneyed people from Hong Kong to Canada and screw everybody else because the pathways to immigration for those people are so restrictive and so class-based and and, you know, income-based. And so what happens to the people, like you said, who are most vulnerable? What happens to, you know, people from the LGBTQ community in Hong Kong? What happens to, you know, economically disadvantaged people from Hong Kong? Like, I've always found this to be um, a part of Canada's approach to Hong Kong. Yes, and it is actually based on this misconception that Hong Kongers are rich and that we are all upper middle class citizen, well educated, speaks English perfectly well. Yes, many of us are, but that is only what, you know, Western movies have portrayed us as um, these kind of, God forbid me saying this, exotic East Asians who uh, thrive between the world of the West and the East. Um, But really, majority of Hong Kongers are poor, majority of Hong Kongers do not speak English. Um, very well Uh, it's taught in school but we're not very good at it and French Canada kind of thing but it's it's missing what Hong Kongers need the most and I think that's the most frustrating part for us is um, you know even going through this immigration measure you have to have CSIS check you have to have RCMP check what happens if you were arrested during the protest movement right that that's a criminal record and they don't charge you under these you know political crimes they charge you for illegal assembly for rioting for whatever charges they make up so it excludes a lot of the people that we want to help the most and it continues to feed this story that uh, hong kongers are wealthy and well educated while leaving those who are most vulnerable behind um it's it's incredibly frustrating yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's the crazy rich Asians of it all, right? It's, it's so the, much so. it really is economic immigration under the guise of, you know, s- helping people out of political distress. And um, I find it quite disingenuous if that's the framing that they're using, um, especially during think- COVID. Yeah, and and I take to your point about you know the queer activists that are um, in Hong Kong as well. You know, uh, feminist activists, queer activists, labor activists. These are 
um, prominent figures that are often the target of political persecution in mainland China. And um, I, I suspect in the coming months that the persecution will begin for activists who may not be outwardly doing this uh, democratic movement work, but are advocates of social issues. So um, I think we are all in for a rude awakening very soon. Well, it seems like one of the only things they're doing is waiving the um, work experience requirement f- um you and know, technically waiving the fees, but and waiving um, the fees, yeah. Uh, but it's basically Hong Kong citizens who have graduated from a Canadian post secondary institution will be able to apply for permanent residency without any work experience. A three year work permit program will also be available for Hong Kong graduates of both Canadian and non Canadian institutions over the past five years, and so, um yeah, this is just a skilled worker program. It's not anything to do with the uh, political distress that a lot of Hong Kongers are experiencing at all. So um, I'd like to pivot a bit and talk about um, how do we distinguish between xenophobia in, in sort of parsing these details and actual support for Hong Kong democracy. I I find that that's a fine line and it's hard to sort of, especially in, in, I know we're moving out of Donald Trump world, but especially during those years, it was hard to just like, I guess, distinguish between the two. And my thing, my question to you is how does, how do how do you distinguish between those? There's a lot to unpack here. So I, <laughs> so I didn't let's say walk it would be easy. One by one. You okay. know, like xenophobia is like if you look at the term racism, it has a meaning and it you know what it is, but it's very hard to put it into perspective. And that's the same way you have to think about xenophobia. It is a kind of an umbrella term because Um, The inadequacies of language, Um, this is one thing I struggle with a lot, is um, in English, we call things Chinese without questioning, is it China Chinese or is it the region of which China occupies that we refer to as Chinese? You get what I'm saying? Kind of like, is it the country? Is it the nation? Is it the people? Is it it an ethnicity? Yeah. And of people with similar features. That is exactly what makes it so confusing. (laughs) Yeah. With that out of the way, we understand language is complicated and the word Chinese means nothing for a Chinese person. And then we dive into the diversity that uh, China has. Um, You know, when you say, like, when you're outside of China, you say, I come from China. But when you're within China, you say, oh, I come from Hubei. Oh, I come from Shanghai. Oh, I come from Canton. They're, each region have their own culture, have their own language, have their own like society. So when you label something as Chinese, it erases all the diversity in it. And I'm getting to the point of xenophobia here, but bear with me. So there's this very diverse China that has been, um, whether by public popular media or by purposeful um, omission is being kind of just simplified as this is Chinese culture. And this is where the regime in China 
has spent many years to perfect this narrative um, that one, we mentioned earlier how China pre um, presents themselves as victims of Western racism and um, imperialism, including, you know, the drug trades, the, you know, hostile takeover of cities like Hong Kong, things like that. So with that historical context in mind, and with their active erasure of um, Chinese identities, so-called, um, they have created this image that the Chinese government is one and the same as the Chinese people is one and the same as the Chinese culture. Have I lost you? <laughs> okay. So with nope. this. No, I'm state, good. I hear like, you. This state government and uh, culture and regional identity of being Chinese is now being migrated to this conversation of xenophobia. So if you say something, the Chinese government is, um, violating human rights in Hong Kong, they will turn around and say, you are insulting Chinese, um, uh, our Chinese people, you're insulting us uh, based on the fact that we are Chinese. But your statement originally is, you're holding the Chinese government accountable for human rights violation and not attacking the Chinese people. But because they have put this image of Chinese state power and the people who reside in China and the Chinese culture as one, this is how they kind of are able to dodge accountability by pivoting and saying it is you're not actually attacking the government you're attacking the people the great people in china if i were to simplify and boil down what you're saying it's is the criticism the government or the people exactly um and but, it's the same thing it's actually similar with like israel right yes absolutely. in terms of do are you criticizing the are you criticizing Jews or are you criticizing the Israeli state? Yes. Not, not the same thing. Because it is a one-party system in mm -hmm. China, that state party and people difference is actively minimized. So it makes right. it additionally difficult to put a finger towards something. And okay. um just kind of highlighting like, you know, uh, they, they have had a lot of, they have shaped this identity of like ethnic identity of. Um, As a political the, identity. Yeah. But like, it's, mm -hmm. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, they're trying to shape this image that the people's Republic of China has always been China. China has always been the territory of which it occupies. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. You see where I'm going there. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but you're not acknowledging the fact that so-called China was an imperialist power mm -hmm. that basically colonized a lot of the regions that it currently occupies. Mm -hmm. And continuing that colonization or that imperialist expansion, um, you're, you're still missing the fact that, you know, is this really China? Did the people of that region consent to being Chinese? Because the, the Tibet people who live exercise, there, right? The Tibet exercise, the East Turkestan exercise, Mongolia exercise, Taiwan, Hong Kong. You know, we can keep on listing the yeah, names because yeah, yeah. every region in China, we could argue that at some point it was not China and at some mm -hmm. point it became China. Right. So... Uh, xenophobia is a very difficult concept to unpack even for 
people who are progressively minded and who think a lot about anti-oppression because of the so many levels of geopolitics, of um, political discourse, and, you know, almost countering the brainwash that we have been facing as a child, even in Hong Kong, gotcha. about what China is and what it represents. And who you are in relation to not only the state, but that concept of China, I would assume. Yeah. Okay. And it's an ongoing conversation I have with myself. So there is no answer, really. I, <laughs> except, the I answer, guess... The yeah, answer, I think, it depends on, um, you know, we are seeing, yeah, the context, obviously, but we are seeing a lot of politicians who appear to be very loud on the China file, who say that they are um, anti-China, but in their... Um, in their work, if you look into the statements and you look into the proposals that they make, um, this is how we identify whether it's xenophobic or not. Is it going to impact people who hold Chinese identities or people who come from the region we acknowledge as China the most? Or is it actually being implemented for the benefit of these folks? Yeah. And that's kind of how we have to navigate xenophobia. Is it actually targeted at the government, at the state power, or at the very real people who have no choice but to obey. Gotcha. That's a good distinction. A very good distinction. I'm comfortable with this distinction. Um, In terms of my own personal understanding, and I hope our listeners are too. Uh, So, you know, as we're, as let's move from xenophobia to like, disinformation campaigns, misinformation, so on and so forth. The Chinese government um, and their misinformation, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they make Trump look like a chump. <laughs> I'm going to break and I am going to try and find a Bill Clinton clip where he oh, talks China? about, yeah, where he talks about exporting democracy to China. Okay, because I feel like this needs to be put in there because Clinton's a chump. Anyway. I know that they have said that in Canada as well, right? Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I would just like to say that uh, first, I believe that uh, Chairman Greenspan has established a pretty good record for knowing what is in America's economic interest. He has once again reiterated clearly and unambiguously that this agreement exchanges membership rights for China in the WTO for economic opportunities for America in China, for American businesses and American workers. Without the tariffs and technology transfer requirements and production in China requirements and other requirements which have limited our ability to benefit from their market for too long. So economically, the case is clear and compelling. But I would also like to emphasize here the national security aspects of this and the human and political rights aspects. You've heard that Chairman Greenspan address the human and political rights aspects and make the point that increasing access to a market economy increases personal freedom in other ways. I will just cite one example, which is that China has gone from 2 million to 9 million to 20 million internet users over the last three years. 
and it was exploding again this year. We do not know uh, where it will be next year. But this is a profoundly significant thing. That's why Martin Lee came all the way from Hong Kong. That's why people who have been themselves oppressed in China have pleaded with us to support this, because they know getting into a rules-based system and promoting economic competition will both enhance the march of liberty and law and human rights. The other point I would like to make is there is a serious national security issue here. We do not know what China will choose to do in the future, and China will make that decision for itself. But we know that one decision will dramatically increase the chances of a constructive relationship with China in a stable Asia, and the other will dramatically increase the chances of a less happy outcome. <laughs> the absolute <laughs> arrogance of these statements is what's killing me right now, because they did not export democracy to China. They imported author authoritarianism, okay? And that's what's killing me, is that that's the outcome, is that, you know, we just saw the capital being scaled, walls being scaled and being basically broken into. And I all, and the same tactics of disinformation campaigns were used. We imported those. We imported the surveillance state, right? We imported surveillance technology and surveillance technology. We imported that. And China is literally selling surveillance technology all over the world for governments to oppress their people and to suppress and oppress. I, I just, it's just the, it's just wild. It's wild to me right now. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and the I know reality th that Chinese dissidents live. We're like, the world is wild and a dumpster fire. It's a dumpster fire. And I just wanted if you could comment on that. And then I'll bring like a counter, <laughs> you know, misinformation, disinformation campaign called the Epic Times that literally in this neighborhood, in my parents' neighborhood, I'm in Calgary right now, I literally get their, um, their paper just at the door for free they just drop it off and i'm like what the fuck they <laughs> like, do um selective neighborhood targeting so like yes, your neighborhood they, must be something I, that gets them to i may probably i mean i wouldn't doubt it with this neighborhood <laughs> i just <Okay>. say <laughs> um also if you have a moment you yeah. should look up Champagne's famous quote of China's 2016 is not the same as China 2020 because it makes me giggle every time. Wait a minute, Francois? Yeah. The, the, um, the now former uh, foreign affairs minister? Yes. I'm going to look this shit up. Okay, go on. Um, so this idea of exporting democracy, it's so ridiculous. Let's look at how democracy has worked for us in Canada here. We can elect a government with absolute power with less than half the vote. Our democracy is a joke. And we expect to export this to a government who does not to be held accountable to its people? That the premise is false. The entire argument is just invalid from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget, in the 90s, 
So you're a fan Western, of proportional representation, I assume. I am a big fan of okay. proportional representation just, and drastic just, democratic reforms. Well, um, yo, I'm uh, I'm just getting it straight. Go ahead. Just t- tossing it in here as well. well. Partisan politics needs to go. Um, but well, on I'm, China. I'm I am uh, if I could, I am a nonpartisan because I think they all suck on some level, and so I am open to um said arguments because i understand like i get it like the way we are represented right now is very much um party politics and mm-hmm. um you know i think riding some too much power um and in terms of who how to make or break a candidate um they actively they they don't recruit you know, they talk about diversity, but they don't give support or recruit a lot of diverse candidates in ridings that aren't already diverse. Like, that's, that's my problem. And the entire political engagement based on partisan politics is false, because they're ultimately each party's only goal is not representing Canadians, but winning a seat. Yeah can defy the purpose of representing Canadians. It's, well, it's, it's a just, paradox. It's just, it's just become a cult movement. It's become like fanfic. Like it's, it's like <laughs> the amount of political fanfic I see. I'm just like, really? Like you, we need to hold these people to account rather than rah, rah, rahing for them. Like what's the matter with you? Anyway, Sorry, go on. I got on a tangent there. Carry on um, with democracy on and the exporting democracy. <laughs> and actually, what I was really asking about was dis- was more disinformation and how that plays into it. So, I mean, sure. yeah, like I do know that CSIS has named China um, and Russia as two of the... Um, as we get more into sort of cyber warfare... Um, Russia and China have been named as the biggest culprits of uh, disinformation campaigns globally. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know why they didn't name the U.S. You know, given what happened, I have export questions. their labor to China and Russia. Maybe that's why. Well, there you go. I mean let's be honest through through exporting democracy through economic means they also exported the middle class of canada and the u.s to china and i i'm just saying that because it's true um, <laughs> they really did they really did but, and so but yes disinformation sorry again i got on a tangent go ahead you know, it's very easy to go on tangents when it comes to China because there's so many moving pieces and you it's can't so understand China without understanding all the moving pieces mm-hmm. because that's how they operate. Mm-hmm. The benefits of not being a democratic um, society is that whoever makes the plans doesn't have to worry about four years from now when they eventually get kicked out of power, but they make these grand 30, 50 year plans mm-hmm. and this is how they are so ahead of us on the disinformation game. Mm-hmm. Um, from the get-go, you know, when the great firewall is built where they blocked out, um, you know, Western media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google, they then formed their own information um, bubble. 
So it is through Chinese social media apps like WeChat, Weibo. Um, gosh, I don't even know any. I, I don't use any of them. Um, but you know, like social media apps and um, you know similar services like Google and things pop up. But all of this is under the control and surveillance of the Chinese government. So any piece of information on the internet is automatically um, categorized. It is. Uh, censored if need be, uh, things like that. So they have, we have to understand the context of this information from the fact that they already have this ongoing disinformation bubble within their nation that is supported by the regime itself. So when, when globalization happened, basically, and when they're like, oh, you know, we should allow people in our nation to leave so that they could preach the greatness of the great China motherland to other countries. Um, that disinformation bubble began to expand. So what I mean is um, there's starting to be um, WeChat circles being formed in Italy, in France, in Canada, in the US, um, in different parts of the world. So instead of that disinformation bubble staying within China, it expanded globally. But because that disinformation bubble starts from China, that cycle of surveillance, that cycle of censorship continues as it expands across the globe. And this is why, you know, a lot of people ask me why are folks in the Chinese community who have lived in Canada for so many years still believe that this information that they get from China is because they had never left that bubble. They didn't need to. Um, and pointing out the faults of the Canadian government that made it happen is also, you know, if you don't fund public broadcasting in different languages, private sector takes over. Who has money and interest to invest in ethnic media? That's a really good point that you just brought up there. So part of the way to um, combat disinformation is to fund uh, multicultural media, basically. Absolutely. And what we are seeing, you know, like right now, um, over time, we have seen, you know, this um, increased, I won't say self-censorship, but like the kind of a selective broadcasting from Chinese language media in Canada to kind of avoid the sensitive topics, to kind of present things um, not necessarily impartially, but in a very specific way that it's um, in line with what the CCP would like them to do. But that this information circle of um, Chinese social media and Chinese uh, search engines and the fact that ethnic media is not really a reliable source of information makes it very easy for these overseas bubbles to continue um, to continue that cycle of disinformation and um, this like blindly following what the state government is saying and presenting. And then you brought up Epoch Times, which is actually uh, a news media organization founded to create ethnic um, media news that is showing the atrocities of China. So it has very close link with the Falun Gong movement um, and uh, various social, various media um, associated with the Epoch Times is also associated with the Falun Gong movement. But um, we saw you know, problematic reportings definitely during the U.S. election 
from um, the Epoch Times and other media sources. And a part of that is, so stepping out of the disinformation bubble for those who are um, Chinese dissidents or Chinese activists who are overseas, um, we already hold this mistrust of information and of, um, of quote unquote mainstream media because for us in our context, mainstream media is state controlled, is state operated, only presenting stories and information that is approved by the state and the state being our oppressor. So that, that level of trauma, uh, bringing that towards here in Canada or wherever they are, somewhere along the lines is that they kind of get lost in not trusting mainstream media, even though uh, or do we really have free media in Canada? Not really, but you know, that, that line of like empirical news. So because of <laughs> that's that, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> it, it, again, nothing about China is easy and straightforward. And this is why, you know, like there's this, this trust of mainstream media that we inherited from our days and being oppressed and being controlled. So it kind of radicalized folks to buy into, oh, all mainstream media are um, liars and uh, only present the story that you want to hear, only presents the story that the government wants you to hear. And that's kind of how a lot of folks fall into this cycle of disinformation, of straight up, straight up alt facts. I don't, and this kind of rabbit hole where eventually the bottom of it is that alt-right fascism that we saw on uh, Capitol Hill last week. Was that last week? That was last week. That was yeah. yeah. <laughs> it it felt like, like it's been a year. I don't it, know. <laughs> it does feel like a year. They're not even meeting people where they are. Oh, right. So all of this um, health info is made for or is messaging for people who are um, white, suburban, middle to upper middle class, educated with university degrees um, and above, and 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 then translated and then given to um, sort of ethnic enclaves or whatever, and which is a load of shit. Because number one, that is your demographic, that's your baseline demographic, just in general, for like everything for like, Paul, like, what is wrong with you? And second of all, you're not talking to people as they, you know, taking into consideration, culture and history and all of this stuff and, and considerations. And then you wonder why the message isn't getting through. Like, that's what kills me. Anyway. And reestablishing language cannot just be translated. It has to be translated with the cultural understanding and lens. Exactly. Or else it's meaningless. It's, it's just meaningless. Words. Thank you. And so, um, yeah, I could totally understand, which is why you're right. Funding, as you said earlier, funding, um, you know, multi-ethnic uh, media is very important. 
very important. Yeah. And I'm here and for it. I think there's other aspects of misinformation that we also need to combat um, that is beyond mainstream media and social media. Social media is a huge factor. I mean, um, WeChat and Weibo, these uh, corporations collect information from Western users and use that to feed into their algorithm to learn how to better uh, censor people in the future. So obviously that is a violation of Canadian privacy and Canadian ish, like national interests. And we see politicians using WeChat. We see um, even Canadian government officials and Canadian um, ministries using WeChat. So these things we need to address. How are we going to regulate social media companies? And uh, obviously not only the Chinese ones, also Twitter, also Instagram, also Facebook from using uh, user uh, data for something malicious. That's one aspect of it. But another aspect of that disinformation comes from the community level. Um, how are you going to stop this disinformation spreading between community members who first may not be fluent in English, who may not um, fully understand the Western socio-political economic context? How are we going to reach the people who aren't English educated, who aren't um, who aren't that like melted pot of ethnic people. I don't know how to describe it. That's a really horrible way to say it. But how are you going to reach people who are not English speaking, who are not well-educated? Yeah. There's just a lot of questions to be had. And I think um, for, especially on combating this information campaign from state authorities, we need to look at both formal and informal ways that they infiltrate communications and um, this kind of discourse. And then we will be able to address the fact that our, our people are being led down these conspiracy holes and just rabbit holes of lies. And that is radicalizing them to, into doing something that um, ultimately hurts our so-called democratic society. Yeah, and we we don't have to imagine that anymore. No, uh, so we we saw we saw a preview. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. And so I mean, yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I I also wanted to kind of point out like that, um, the kind of what happened on the Capitol, like that kind of mobilization through this information is also something we have observed from the diasporic activist circle where, you know, overseas international students are being used as pawns of the Chinese government to harass and intimidate Canadians for protesting peacefully. And these folks aren't coming from a malicious perspective that they hate us, but they are being encouraged by their government to love their homeland and to love your homeland is by harassing and attacking Hong Kong activists. So these kind of disinformation campaign have a very real impact, both as we saw on the Capitol and um, being less reported is the fact that, you know, um, it is also a method of social control from authoritarian states. All right. So on that note, um, we are going to end our lovely discussion of <laughs> of the Hong All Kong protests. Yeah, I I I know this was going to be um, 
I know there were going to be a lot of sort of enclaves of um, discussion points. And so it's, it's not an easy thing to grasp. And you, you have to know a little bit of uh, Chinese imperialism and a little bit about, you know, just what's happened in the last five to 10 years, and especially post um, sort of return of China, of Hong Kong, and post 1997, and how, you know, those relations have gone. So I totally, I totally understand why it went all over, over the place yet can hopefully be edited in a streamlined way as I'm <laughs> as I'm reminding myself. So um come back and chat with us when uh you have some when things get when things advance because <laughs> you know they'll advance but come back and chat with us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you for clearing up some things and just you know, thank you for your ongoing activism, um, especially in an area of the world that day to day, many of us do not pay attention to. And we're finding out how important activism is to actual democracy. And I think that that's what's so frightening is that once you once you close down activism, you're literally closing down democracy. Come back and chat with us and we shall see you next or yeah see you next time and ciao thank you for having me thank you for coming all right everybody um i will chat with you oh the next time you'll hear us is misogynist of the week ciao that was a long ass outro i must say it was long. Okay. Well, I'll cut it in whenever. My bitch is bad and bullshit.